My name's Greg, I'm one of the ministers here at OEC and it's my great pleasure and privilege to be opening God's Word with you. Keep that Bible passage open, uh, every other passage will come up on the screen. Um, also, as Miles mentioned, we're having question time um, after the break uh, and if you look at your handouts you can see on the order of service there um, that it's got the Slido number, so we're going to be using Slido again. Uh, if you don't know what that is, if you simply put that in your browser on your phone, um, you click on Slido, you can put that number in and you can put your questions in to us uh, on that and I'll answer the questions uh, later on in the service. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for the wonder of your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly. Father, as we listen to your word, we pray that you would help us to listen with humble hearts, with open minds, with open ears, with eyes that want to see. Father, we pray that you would change us. We pray that you would help us to know and love you more as we open your word together. And we'd be struck by what you've done and be, and be moved to change, to grow to know you better and serve you more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. That was the campaign uh, that was run across 800 buses in the UK in 2009. Uh, it was the brainchild of comedy writer Ariane Shireen and had the support of um, noted atheist and, and author Richard Dawkins. Now, at the time when this was uh, parading around London with, these, uh, with this campaign, uh, Dawkins was interviewed about the campaign and he mentioned that he would like to have had the, a stronger slogan um, then just probably no God. Uh, you actually were speaking to a reporter at the time, um, uh, and he said, you can't say there's definitely no God like you can't say there's definitely no Father Christmas. That's what he said. And writers like Richard Dawkins and others like Christopher Hitchens and Steve Hawking, atheist scientists, have all written books and articles and ideas and interviews making the claim that science has disproved Christianity. Now, you know, they say that the idea that there's someone out there outside the universe, a greater being who's made and controls all things, is just we've we've grown beyond that now as a society. We don't need to think like that anymore. And so it's been proved false that there's a God, because we don't need God to explain our world and how it works. We don't need God to explain how our world began and how it will end. Science does that for us now. That's the modern scientific response to God by these people like Dawkins. That is that we should leave the superstition of religion behind us, the hocus-pocus of religion in our past. But instead of me putting words in their mouth, let's see the sort of thing that some of these guys say about belief in God. Dawkins, this one comes from Dawkins, from a blog of his. Uh, we explain our existence by a combination of the anthropic principle and Darwin's principle of natural selection. That combination provides a complete and deeply satisfying explanation for everything that we see and know. Not only do we need no God to explain the universe and life, God stands out in the universe as the most glaring of all superfluous sore thumbs. We cannot, of course, disprove God just as we cannot disprove Thor, fairies, leprechauns and the flying spaghetti monster. But like those other fantasies that we can't disprove, we can say that God is very, very improbable. 
According to Dawkins, the Christian faith is a leap into the dark unknown. In fact, it's, it's stronger than that. The Christian faith is a leap into the dark improbability of the existence of God that has no basis, that has no proof. Dawkins is right on an important point. If, if Christian faith or any belief in God is a leap into the dark unknown, a leap into something that is unlikely to be true with no evidence or basis, then we should just give up on it and walk out the door. If there's no proof, why do we believe it? But is, is he right, in, and others like him right, in saying that there's no plausible proof for the existence of God? Is he right in saying that belief in God is comparable to belief in the flying spaghetti monster? Is that a fair comparison to make? The scientific question is an important question to ask. The Christian faith asks us to lay down our life. It asks us to welcome suffering in this world, to risk rejection, to sacrifice ourselves, to take up our cross. If there's no plausible proof for the existence of the Christian God, then why should we continue in it? Why should we give our life to it? As a thinking Christian with belief in a living and personal God, it's not going to surprise you that I disagree with Dawkins, that there's no proof for the existence of God and no proof of the existence of the Christian God. I believe there is more than plausible evidence and plausible proof of the existence of God, and the Christian God in particular. Christian faith is not a leap into the dark, as these scientists would have you believe. And I want to show you why tonight. So let's start with science. Over the last um, century, scientific investigation into the beginning of the universe has led to the discovery of six universal constants that need to be very finely tuned if there's ever going to be any chance of the existence of the universe as we know it with life in it. I'm going to just take one example and that's the force of gravity. Now, gravity is one of the weakest forces in the universe, however, it's absolutely essential to life and it has to be just right if it's going to work, if the universe is going to support life. So if the gravitational constant was different, just slightly larger, then stars would be too hot, would burn too quickly to ever create the chance of life forming. But if gravity, the gravitational constant was slightly smaller, stars would be too cool to generate the conditions we would need for life. So it needs to be just right. How just right? Let me give you an illustration about how just right. Let's say you had a dial to alter the gravitational constant, okay, to set up your universe, if you want to put it like that. And that dial has got 10 to the power of 60 lines on it, okay? That's a big number, if you're not sure. 10 to the power of 60, you're talking one with 61 zeros on the end. That many lines outside this dial, okay? If the gravitational constant was different by just one notch on that dial, either way, life in this universe could not exist. That's how close, that's how, that's how accurate it has to be, that's how accurate it is in order to allow our life to exist in our universe. And I think about these six universal constants, they're like six dials that set the scientific physical characteristic of our universe and every one of them needs to be just so, just right 
for our universe to exist like it is. In observing these facts, uh, astronomer Fred Hoyle said this in 1981, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion beyond question. At the time that Fred Hoyle said this, he was an atheist. And he wasn't the only one who was saying it either and continues to say it. In, in the face of this apparent rigging of the dials for the universe, many scientists have instead posited a theory of a multiverse, that we actually live in a reality where there's multiple universes. It's not the Marvel multiverse, okay? Just make that crystal clear. They've all got different physical properties. Um, they just happen to be out there somewhere. Stephen Weinberg, um, physicist and atheist, said this to Dawkins. Uh, if you really, if you discovered a really impressive fine tuning, I think you'd be really left with two, only two explanations. A benevolent designer, that's another way of saying a god, or a multiverse. So the choice seems to be believe in a multiverse, a scientific theory that you cannot investigate and cannot test and cannot prove, or believe in a greater being, God. So science doesn't disprove the existence of God. In fact, if anything, it appears to point to the existence of something greater outside the universe, unless you want to believe in a multiverse instead. But if that's all science can do, it's a little bit disappointing, isn't it, really, when you think about it? You know, that's a long way from the proof for the Christian personal God, isn't it? Just that there's a God out there somewhere who's monkeyed with the physics. That's all we've got. That's all science can get to. If that's all the proof we've got, then we have no way of knowing who or what or how many of these gods there are, and we'd all be left in the dark trying to work out what God is like, never really being able to know. The trouble with this scientific approach to proving the existence of God is that we're trying to prove God like he's something inside the system, like we can put him in a test tube and test if he's real and test what he's like, poke and prod and prove and disprove. But that's not how you get to know a person, is it? And that's not how you prove the existence of God. If, a, if God is a person, if God is a personal being, as we Christians believe that he is, then the proof we're looking for is not scientific proof. The way we get to know people is how? By meeting them, by listening to them, spending time with them. That's how you get to know someone. I mean, not all of you here know me that well. How would you get to know me? Well, I could give you all the facts. I could give you my height and my weight. That's a bit embarrassing, but I won't do that. Um, I could, you could put my DNA under a microscope um, and investigate me all you like, but you won't actually get to know me, will you? You won't know me as a person. No, the only way you can really get to know me is if we talk, if we spend time, if I let you in to what I'm really like. You ask me questions. I give you answers. We get to know each other and you get to know me. I need to reveal myself to you if you're ever going to get to know me. And the same is true with God. So, what if God just came out in the open and revealed himself to the world, to everybody? What if God just, bang, turned up on the streets of New York or London? Let's say he made an entry, you know, proved without a shadow of a doubt that he was real. Maybe he would arrive at Circular Quay and part Sydney Harbour and walk to Manly. Wouldn't that go all over Facebook and Twitter 
everywhere. It would just be viral all over the place. No one would miss it. Everyone would see it. We have the technology now. It would be amazing. Everyone would have to believe, wouldn't they? How could anyone deny him then? I mean, if God really wants us to know him, why does he seem to hide in obscurity? Why doesn't he just show up on the planet? The answer to that question is because he has. And when he did, the whole world didn't believe. Even though his miracles, his words actually went viral all over Judah, all over Samaria, all over Galilee and beyond. If you've closed your Bibles, open them up again. John chapter 1. The passage we read earlier, at the beginning of his account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, John takes us right back to the very beginning, the very start, the creation of the cosmos, the word of God who was with God. It was through him that the world and everything was made. God's a speaking God. And by this speak, uh, and this speaking God didn't just stay out there somewhere at a distance and speak from a distance, no, Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have, have, we have observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Drop down to verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. If God is a personal God, God is a God who speaks. This is what you would expect him to do, wouldn't you? To reveal himself, to speak clearly. God is a speaking, communicating God. And when he speaks, he doesn't do so in ways that are hard to access and hard to understand. He's come into our world and spoken in the person of his son, loud and clear, in the flesh. So you want proof for the existence of God? You need to meet Jesus. You need to get to know him. Because if you know him, you know God, because he's no less than God in the flesh, the embodied word of God. God's a person, and he came into this world as a person, and he lived our life, he suffered, he talked, he ate, he drank, he partied, he listened, he touched, he cried, he cared, he died, he rose again. In real time, real space, with real people, he turned up on the planet, and revealed himself to us? Did the world bow and wonder and listen with bated breath to everything he said, hang off every word? Well, there were some that did and recognised that in Jesus something amazing was happening. They saw in him the imprint of the living God. But by and large, almost everyone rejected him. And you see this in John 1. Have a look at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognise him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. God turned up on the planet. The creator stepped out into the open and people didn't recognise him. Like, how can that happen? Why did that happen? How come they couldn't see? Well, let's look at some examples. John lets us know. In chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And when, when he did this, Lazarus's body was not just mostly dead. It was four days dead in the tomb, dead. It's the sort of thing you'd expect God to do if he turns up on the planet. Raise someone from the dead, that's what Jesus did. What happened? Did people go, wow, 
God is really amongst us? Well, some did at the start. In John 12, verses 10 to 11, it'll come up on the screen, then a large crowd of the Jews learnt he was there. They came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. So the leaders, they don't really get that this guy's God, do they? They just want to kill him. Oh, and Lazarus as well. You think, poor Lazarus, he's already died once, he's going to die again. But there's others who believe. What happens to them? Do they bow the knee? No. They come to Jesus, they speak to him, and then reject him. And we see it in the rest of the chapter, verse 37. Uh, Even though he had performed so many uh, signs in their presence, they did not believe him. Why? Well, let's read on. Verse 42, John continues and tells us why. Nevertheless, many did believe him in him, even among the rulers. Well, that sounds positive, doesn't it? But as we read on, we see that that initial faith turns into indifference. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Surely, raising the dead is enough proof, isn't it? Surely, no. Why? Well, the reason they don't believe is not because of a lack of evidence. That's not the issue. The evidence is right in front of them. Rather, it's their preference and our preference for life without reference to God. That's why they didn't believe. And even after Jesus rose from the dead, himself never to die again, so many who heard about this and saw the empty tomb still did not believe. We love life now, don't we? We love others now and the love of others and the attention of others and the things we can have and we just don't want God to get in the road and interfere. And so even when God turns up on the scene and heals and performs all sorts of miracles, including raising the dead, we ignored him and we killed him. So while we might like to think that if God showed up and clearly demonstrated who he is, that we would all bow the knee and believe in him, the truth is, we wouldn't. Because we didn't then, and we wouldn't now. Because the issues haven't changed. The problem is not a lack of evidence. It's our desire for a life without the interference of God. One of the things I get the privilege of uh, being involved in in my ministry is ministry on the university campus here in Orange at CSU, sharing the wonderful news of Jesus with students on campus and helping Christian students to do the same. Uh, Four years ago, we booked out one of the lecture theatres and invited one of our own, OEC's own, Scott Hazelton from Church at Nine to give a talk on science and God, friends or enemies. Scott gave a very clear presentation of how science does not disprove God with much more clarity and much more science than I ever could. And there was about 40 students there in the lecture theatre, about half were Christian, half didn't trust in Jesus yet. After his talk, there was an opportunity to ask questions. Do you want to know how many of the students asked questions about science? None. It's fascinating. One student asked why he thought people had turned to atheism from a belief in God. Scott answered saying, by and large, Australians haven't turned to atheism, they've actually turned to secularism. Love for the things of this world. And ignoring God. 
not thinking atheism. He suggested people don't believe in God, not because of the arguments that the atheist scientists were presenting about the absurdity of believing in God, but simply because they didn't see a need for God, and in particular because of the trouble of suffering that they go through and they see others go through and don't know how God fits into that. When Scott answered that question like that, no one pushed him and said, I don't think you're right. They actually agreed with him and wanted to know his answer to the question of suffering. Wanted to go there instead. Um, after he answered that, he again gave an opportunity and asked if people had a question on science and God, because that's what he came to talk about. And there was science. No questions. That's fascinating, isn't it? And the thing is, you know, the campus on at Orange is... Um, it's a science campus. It's a health science campus. Science is the air that they breathe. Now, the last two years, Orange Christian students, we've held a dessert night where I would speak on one of the questions that the students felt their friends would most likely want to hear an answer to. We put a poll on Facebook, including the question, God versus science. Hasn't science proved that we don't need God? Both years, not one vote for that question. Isn't that fascinating? Top votes last two years have been what does it mean to me, uh, to be me? Why am I here? The identity question. Uh, then the next one, okay, let's say God exists. So what, what difference does it actually make? They're the questions that they wanted answers to and that the friends wanted answers to. That's fascinating, isn't it? Why, why is the scientific proof question such a non-event on a science campus? It's not that people aren't interested in that question. They are. It's not that finding good answers to the question of science isn't important to them. It is, both to them and to us. The answer as to why it doesn't seem like much of an event on the campus is because there's more pressing questions that people want answers to. And there's a different proof that they're looking for. So Karina's meeting with someone on campus at the moment and reading the Bible with her. She's studying uh, to be a dentist, not Karina, sorry, the friend, make that really clear. Um, after coming to the dessert night that she did earlier in the, um, uh, in the term, uh, she wanted to find out more about this Jesus and she's interested in the proof of Christianity and wants to find out. But it's not the scientific proof she's looking for. That's not the question she's asking. It's the proof of, who is Jesus who he says he is? Did he really die? Did he really rise again? When he said he was the only way to be made right with God, is that right? Is that true? She wants to come to know whether the Jesus in the Bible is true or not and whether she should take his claims seriously. And that's a great encouragement, isn't it? Because that's, that's how you answer this proof question. It's the right way to find the answer to the proof of Christianity because if God is a person, then the proof we're looking for is to meet them and to hear them speak, and to listen to them, and get to know them as they reveal themselves to us. And that's what God has done. And that's the proof of Christianity. One of the exciting things about Christianity is the way the truth of Christianity hangs on the verifiability of the historical claims of Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection never to die again. He proved that Jesus didn't live. He proved that Jesus didn't die. He proved that Jesus didn't rise again. Then Christianity falls in a heap and we might as well just walk out the door. Ignore God because it's all just an elaborate hoax. But it's not an elaborate hoax because Jesus really did live and he really did die and he really did rise again. 
Uh, we looked at the, this a couple of weeks ago when Tim took us through the historical question, who is Jesus? Great talk. If you missed it, have a look on the website. You can catch it there. Uh, the proof of the Christian God is meeting him in the person of Jesus and you can meet the historical Jesus, the risen Jesus, in his word, in the scriptures. The gospel writers, they wrote their accounts of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, knowing that they were writing history, events that actually happened in time and space and place within the lifetime of those who witnessed them and when they were writing. Look at how Luke opens up his account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus in Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. You see it on the screen. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you an orderly sequence. In an orderly sequence, most honourable Theophilus, have a look at this verse. This one's the one I really want you to see. So that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. The certainty. The things that Christians believe are things we can be certain about. The Christian faith is not a leap into the dark unknown of things we just need to believe in opposition to the facts, in opposition to the proof. No, there's proof. These are things we can be certain of. That happened in history in real time and space. Christian faith is trusting the God who has revealed himself in the historical person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite all the, all the noise that the atheists, uh, the popular atheists have made about the absurdity of belief in the Christian God, it's not absurd to believe that God exists when he entered into our world and has spoken in his word. That's not absurd. The big question really is, are you willing to listen? That's the question. Will you trust in this God who has clearly spoken recognisably in ways we can know and access and be certain of? Will you read the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures which Jesus read, the New Testament scriptures that reveal to us the living Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead? If you're here tonight and you don't yet know the Lord Jesus, it is so good that you're here and we can open God's word together and reflect on it. Let me encourage you to continue to come. I've got a challenge for you, if that's you. Will you read the Gospel of Mark or Matthew or Luke or John? It really doesn't matter which one it is. Will you read it? Will you read it yourself? Will you read it with someone else who you know trusts in Jesus? Will you read it asking yourself, can I trust this guy called Jesus? Is he who he says he is? Read it with an open heart and see if you recognize the voice, the words of your creator. Jesus says these words in Luke 11. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So will you ask? Will you seek? Will you knock? Will you listen to the words of your creator? Because God is a God who loves to speak and loves to reveal himself. He sent his son to do just that. If you already trust in Jesus, as, as Christians, we shouldn't fear the science God question. 
because we believe in a God who created a world with order and purpose. Science is the study of investigating a world that is made with order and purpose. Science can't disprove the existence of God. Science makes sense of a world that was created with order and purpose. Without God, our world is directionless, purposeless, meaningless, empty. We are just a fluke of slime plus time if there is no God. That's all we are. We're just a blip in the vast expanse of time and space and emptiness if there is no God. That's all we are. And if that's the case, then my life doesn't matter and your life doesn't matter. And the way I treat you doesn't matter. And the way you treat me doesn't matter. Because in billions and billions of years, when this universe becomes as cold as when it began, it'll all amount to nothing anyway. Without God, there can't be any meaning. Without God, there can't be any justice because there's no right and wrong because there is no judge. But there is a God and he has spoken and we can know him. And with that knowledge comes meaning and purpose, and life, and light, and hope, and truth, and joy, and everything matters again. I praise God that he has spoken. I praise God that he hasn't left us in the dark. I praise God that I can know my creator and know that he knows me. I praise God that he sent Jesus into this God-forsaken world to bring light, and life, and hope, and joy, and meaning, and purpose. The God of heaven and earth lives. And so how I live and how you live, what we do, how we treat people and how we treat him really matters. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you so much that you have sent your son and that in him we get to know you as you truly are. The great God who is our creator and not just our creator, but our saviour one who loves us so much that he came, that you came and you died in our place. Father, help us to listen with open hearts. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at this world that you have made, that we would see the wonder of a world that is created with order. But more importantly, we pray that we look at Jesus, that we would see the wonder of who you are and who we are in your sight as your children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.